Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 430 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones organized in various ways. <clears throat> this show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. Also, another way to support the show is that about one quarter of the people who watch these videos on YouTube actually subscribe to the channel, the BatGap channel, and it helps us if you subscribe. YouTube gives us more support and, I don't know, I think it maybe makes the interviews come up more prominently in people's search results and stuff. So if you would like to do so, please just click the subscribe button and you'll also get notified by YouTube via email whenever a new interview is posted, if you are subscribed. So my guest today is Kabir Helminski. Kabir is a sheikh, sheikh, excuse me, in the lineage of Rumi and co-director of the Threshold Society, Sufism.org. His translations of Rumi and books on spirituality, Living Presence and The Knowing Heart have been published in at least eight languages. Living Presence, which I read cover to cover and we'll be talking about a lot, is now being published in a commemorative 25th anniversary edition. In 2009 and subsequent years, Kabir was named as one of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world by the Royal Strategic Studies Center in Jordan. He's toured North America as Sheikh with the Whirling Dervishes of Turkey, bringing Sufi culture to more than 100,000 people. His latest book is Holistic Islam. So welcome, Kabir. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for inviting me. And as I often say when I do these interviews, and it's very true of you also, I, I thoroughly enjoyed preparing for this one, um, reading your book in, in its entirety, that, the, the uh, you know, Living Presence book, and listening to quite a few hours of, of your talks. The impression I got in doing both of those things was a lot of heart, a lot of tenderness, softness of heart, which is a quality I very much admire, and a lot of wisdom. And I, I don't think those two are <laughs> utterly disconnected from one another. But the wisdom as expressed in words and the heart as expressed in feeling, mm. very intertwined and, and came through very nicely in your talks and your book. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. Thank you so much. So these interviews usually consist of two main ingredients. One is the person's story how they kind of got to be where they are today. And, you know, some people dismiss stories. They say, oh, it's just the story. It's about an individual, and I'm much, so much more than that. But it, it helps people relate, you know. It helps people can kind of think, oh, yeah, that's kind of like me. I went through that, and, and look, where he, look how he's doing, and so maybe there's hope for me. And um, another, obviously, is the knowledge or the wisdom uh, that the person wishes to impart either the wisdom of a tradition or whatever they have gleaned from their own uh, awakening. So hopefully we'll cover both of those quite thoroughly today. Let's start with your story. You're about my age, I guess, late 60s. Probably uh, went through some of the same things I did in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Yes, I get that. <laughs> yeah. And like me, I imagine you really got sort of like inspired by 
the vision of possibilities that you somehow stumbled upon during those times and then took it from there, following you know, your intuition and your experience and, and so on. Is that a, a fair summary of what happened? Well said, Rick. You know, there was an opening that happened for me one very cold night on a lake in New Hampshire underneath magnificent stars and in which the worlds I had known dissolved and another universe opened up and I saw, as I expressed it at the time, the simple truth that it is. It's that simple. It is. And I've had some good friends who also understood the nature of this is. And um, I think I've spent the rest of my life embodying that, mm-hmm. finding ways to embody that, that uh, truth that was beyond anything I had known, beyond any human formulations, beyond any religious theology that I, I knew. Was there a bit of chemical assistance in that it is? It was some very pure chemical assistance. <laughs> and this We're talking now about maybe January of 1965, just to put it into perspective. Yeah. This was at least a couple of years before, you know, the psychedelic revolution, so-called, that hit Main Street. So I was fortunate enough to have this experience under the guidance of some very wise people and to be, you know, held and protected in that exploration. And shortly thereafter, I switched my major in college from literature to Eastern religions and uh, I spent a few years, I studied Sanskrit for two years. For a while, my focus was on the Far Eastern traditions. And I met Baba Ramdas the week that he came back from India. And that also brought with it a certain grace, I think, that came from his guru. But it's a long journey. I don't want to you know, bore anybody. There are a lot of details, of course, but it began with this exploration in the Far Eastern traditions and also living in San Francisco in the late 60s and then coming back to New Hampshire in the early 70s and working in a school that I could describe as something like a Zen school of hard work and mindfulness. And this was a practice that went on a good full two days a week of pretty hard physical labor and mindfulness. And it was like a boot camp of mindfulness. After a while, I felt that my heart was in a bit of a straitjacket. There was a quite a development of mindfulness and self-awareness. But I felt that somehow when I looked at the relationships in this group, something seemed missing to me. And though I was in a somewhat privileged position in that group, being sort of a one of the sub-teachers, one of the right-hand people of the main teacher, I and my wife Camille chose to leave, and we didn't know where we were headed. But before too long, we began to 
experience something of the Sufi world, and first with some teachers here in North America, but quite soon it led us to Turkey. And in Turkey, in Konya, which is the hometown of uh, Jalaluddin Rumi, I met a master there who I recognized as my teacher or I accepted as my teacher. And I found my connection with the Mevlevi tradition, which has been my spiritual home ever since, since approximately 1980. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is Rumi's tradition. And it's a very broad, comprehensive tradition that involves all kinds of practices from contemplation, meditation, chanting, whirling, or what, what we call turning, and also a great intellectual tradition as well. Um, so I've been at home on this path and in later years, I branched out a little bit. I was invited to be in a project called the Spiritual Paths Foundation. And this brought me together with some contemplatives in other traditions. With, for instance, uh, we did a number, I don't know, over, I think it was eight years, we did at least one weekend a year working with other contemplative teachers like Father Thomas Keating, Mm -hmm. I just uh, listened to an uh, audio this morning of you uh, and Thomas Keating having a talk. Yeah. Yes, yes, a great, you know, w one of the great mm -hmm. living Catholic mystics. Yeah. And Cynthia Bourgeau, another great voice in the Catholic or in the Christian world, she's not Catholic. And then uh, various rabbis, including Rabbi Rami Shapiro and people from the Ramakrishna tradition. And we worked together and in an interspiritual mode. And the beauty of this was recognizing our commonality, recognizing that while we had traveled parallel paths in many ways, uh, and we experienced para many parallel experiences uh, as people, for the most part, who were journeying outside our, the traditions of our birth and uh, coming in contact with Asian traditions mostly, even including Rabbi Rami, who was a rabbi, but also he practiced Zen for 10 years. Uh, it was an interesting time in terms of, um, you know, discovering what was universal in our realization. Yeah. And of course, I always was wanted that, and yet I didn't choose to be a universalist and the reason for that is I mean <laughs> the reason for that is that every time I found a teacher some of whom were extraordinary beings claiming this kind of universality or claiming to to offer a universal spiritual teaching sooner or later, it always seemed to me to become a one-man tradition. So I've accepted being part of the Mevlevi Sufi tradition. I think one advantage of that is if I call people that, I'm not calling them to myself exclusively as, as a teacher. 
I'm calling them to uh, centuries of a very refined and uh, verified tradition of wisdom. And that over the centuries in this tradition, which has, has a universality within its own teachings, within its own framework, it looks towards the infinite. It doesn't, Sufism and Islam, true Islam for that matter, doesn't claim a monopoly on truth. So it's a wide enough framework in which to both be held in the bosom of tradition and under the auspices of the great beings who we feel are alive and with us all the time, and at the same time opening up to something, to a vision that is uh, inclusive and that can comprehend the truth, the value, the beauty of other traditions. Mm. Well, uh, quite a few things I could ask you based upon what you just said. First thing I want to do is extend my condolences for what happened in Egypt the other day. Uh, that was a Sufi mosque in which that yes. massacre occurred. And I, yes. I was reminded of that. Well, I had it in mind anyway, but what you said about claiming universality, claiming exclusivity of the truth, that was a horrible example of the consequences of that sort of attitude taken to extremes. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. You know, in reality, this is... There is what some people have called a war against consciousness. And it's in every religion, it's in every society. Not to, uh, you know, stoke up the idea, the, the, the metaphor of war, but it, in this case, a high price was paid. People paid with their lives for uh, being part of a community that uh, emphasizes love and tolerance and mutual understanding and inclusiveness mm. and uh, they paid a great price for it. Yeah, the mystics have always had a hard time in, in most traditions, at least in the West. Um, I mean, St. John of the Cross was locked in a closet for 14 years or something and, you know, Meister Eckhart was on the verge of getting really messed up by the Inquisition, but he conveniently died in the nick of time of natural causes. And I mean, there's a song, we go into dozens and dozens of examples of people who are actually living what the founder of that religion was talking about and uh, why he came out to talk, and yet, ironically, they are persecuted for actually having the experience, that experience that the founder wanted them to have. It sometimes happens that way, yes. Yeah. Yes. Sufism is a branch of Islam, and in many people's minds, Islam has a bad rap these days in the West because of things I don't even have to elaborate on that have been happening. So help us distinguish between Sufism and Islam in general. Because a minute ago you used the phrase pure Islam, or, or I forget if that's the way you phrased it, but obviously there's a, yeah. there's a beauty and a purity to it if it's properly understood and appreciated and I believe Sufism probably comes closest, closer than any other facet or branch of Islam to, to recognizing that. Well let me start talking about Islam first and then okay. I'll bring Sufism into it. Mm -hmm. In these days, especially since 1979 when the Iranian revolution happened and the 
uh, Saudi monarchy reacted against it by increasing its propaganda efforts in exporting Wahhabi Islam. Islam has been, a toxic Islam has been spread throughout the world that is not classical Islam, it's not traditional Islam. So, without even trying to, to talk about a pure Islam, to even just be realistic and talk about traditional Islam. Traditional Islam began as a radical interfaith movement. It's, uh, it spread right at the beginning, happened so rapidly and so extensively because it took into itself other faith traditions and it did not require, it never allowed forced conversions. That's absolutely forbidden under Islamic law. So if ever it happens, it's a violation of Islamic law. So Christians, especially throughout the Middle East, most Christians were not Byzantine or Roman Christians. Most of them were subgroups of Nestorian and sometimes Gnostic and so forth. Those people did very well under Islam. The monasteries throughout Egypt and Syria flourished after the Arab conquests. Now, just going on in history, you know, in Spain and also under the Ottoman Empire, Judaism flourished and was protected. And uh, Islam has a way of including people of the book. And this is all part of the Islamic framework. The Quran says whether you are Muslim, Christian, Jewish, or whatever, if you believe in a final accounting and live righteously, you'll have nothing to fear from God. Basic teaching. And how so, does that juxtapose with the statement, you know, there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, or is that a mistranslation? There is no God but Allah, but Allah is not the Muslim God. Allah is... We could get into a discussion of what Allah means, but Allah has, Allah is without gender. Allah is, even the mystics uh, recognize Allah in a completely non-dual kind of understanding. And this is justified even in the Quran. So Allah, we could say that Allah is not a God and by the way, everything I'm saying now, I believe, is supported by the Quran and even by a kind of orthodox interpretation. Allah is not some God outside of existence. Allah is the oneness, intelligence, and mercy of the whole of existence. Yeah. And it cannot be separated. I think that if we, if we had this conversation, if we had time to have it in depth, we would quickly come to an understanding that the concept of Allah is that it is a unified field of being out of which all of this arises and is never separate. It is ungendered. It is fundamentally beneficent. Mm -hmm. This is Allah. And there have been 144,000 prophets that have come, of which Muhammad was simply the last, putting a seal, you might say the seal of authenticity on all those other many thousands of prophets, and to every community a prophet has been sent, giving essentially the same truth 
even if that truth is later distorted by human beings. Which always uh, happens. Which always happens. <laughs> so, you know, if you look at the, and really everything I'm saying is Quranic and pretty hard to dispute. So this is this is the framework okay. of, of, of Islam. So traditional Islam was pretty good, you know, I mean, no human society and certainly no empire is perfect, but there was a more tolerance and uh, even in many cases respect given to the other sacred traditions under Islamic law. So this is Islam. Now, within Islam, you know, most people are born into whatever they're born. They don't question what they're born into. They don't question their religion, their ethnicity, their I would say nationality, but nations are a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, most people don't question that, they just are what they are. Sufism is the esoteric dimension of Islam. It is not Sunni or Shia, in other words, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with the doctrinal divisions. There are Shia Sufis, there are Sunni Sufis, and most Sufis wouldn't pay much attention to these distinctions anyway. So Sufism is that that intentional practice of consciousness, of higher consciousness, of self-awareness, of self-knowledge, of increasing our capacities for love, uh, of awakening our subtle perceptive faculties under the guidance of a tradition and a teacher, a master. There, Technically, I mean, properly speaking, there. I don't mean to sound dogmatic about this, but practically speaking, there are no freelance Sufis. Because we view this as a having the humility to accept a teacher, at least at a certain stage of one's development, is part of the process of coming to. Uh, be free of our egoism and our false self. Mm -hmm. So it's usually involves a master-apprentice kind of relationship and also a relationship with the community because it's a very relational spirituality. Almost more than any other spirituality, historically, Sufis have uh, the, the whole setup is based in community and a respectful, loving relationship with brothers and sisters, with elders who are a little further along on the path. So that the, the reality of oneness comes through this manyness, the reality of, of understanding our unity and uh, comes from the, the work of acceptance and humility and uh, you know mutual respect and service. So it's always uh, it's Sufism is almost never a tutorial, nor a practice for hermits. It's uh, usually involves even the sheikhs are typically married and have families and have a profession. So Sufism is not the profession of a sheikh. Sheikhs almost always have uh, their own trade, mm -hmm. their own livelihood. So. Basically, it's the esoteric dimension of Islam. Okay, good. So it sounds like it would be fair to summarize by saying that Sufism has a 
an experiential orientation, a developmental orientation, whereas you know the more conventional forms of Islam or any religion are more about what you believe and you know what doctrines you adhere to and so on. You may go on your whole life believing in things in great detail, but not having any of the experience to which those things refer. So Sufis are all about having the experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And just it's, while we're on the history of it, um, you mentioned 144,000 prophets and. Uh, Raymond Schumann from Olympia, Washington, submitted a question asking about whether it's the spiritual descendant of, whether Sufism is a spiritual descendant of Zoroastrianism. And when you said 144,000, I thought, wow, how far back does that go? So maybe you could answer both those questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I wouldn't say that Sufism is descended from Zoroastrianism, although we can recognize that Zoroastrianism had so much to contribute to the concepts of theistic tradition. Mm -hmm. The way we understand it is that the Prophet Muhammad was something like a tabula rasa. He was an empty slate when his prophethood began. Mm -hmm. He was not, the, the that part of the world, Arabia at that time, was more or less without a deep spirituality of any sort. And so Muhammad was not influenced uh, very much by Christianity or Judaism or any Arab uh, religiosity. He began, you might say, as an empty slate. As I recall the story, he got pretty heavily zapped by some angelic beings or something and then had this huge metamorphosis. <clears throat> Over 23 years, he began to have experiences of revelation, of some vast intelligence, some something, a voice from outside of human personality speaking to Muhammad and guiding him, sometimes even criticizing him. Uh, so, and that is the Quran. That, that was all recorded. It was uh, an inimitably beautiful language. And the final result is a profoundly coherent text, mm -hmm. although I'll admit that many Westerners approaching the text at first, especially with while projecting their expectations on, on it and even their perhaps their allergies against the, the uh, religious uh, conditioning of their backgrounds, uh, people get into a muddle reading it, but a great scholar, a great Western scholar, Norman O. Brown, said that the West wasn't really able to read the Quran until James Joyce wrote Finnegan's Wake. And the reason he said that was he said the Quran, like Finnegan's Wake, is a language event. It's not a narrative, it's not a rule book, it's not systematic, but it is a language event that comes into human language and in a way blows it apart and yet conveys something in that totally cosmic and yet coherent series of revelations. So it's an unusual book, but it has been a book that has I mean, all the mystics of Sufism are deeply tied to the Quran and found within it a language for their deepest non-dual realization. 
So I want to underline that fact. It's quite extraordinary in, in, in that way. Okay. Um, I have to ask, just because people afterwards might pose this question, and I, I want to have you address it. And that is, what do you what do you make of people like Sam Harris, who cherry pick a lot of verses out of the Quran and, and make it seem rather brutal? Um, do you have an answer to that kind of critique? I do have an answer, a thorough answer. I mm -hmm. wrote a chapter in a book about that, and all of the verses of the Quran that involve fighting have a context. And sometimes, first of all, the context was that the early Muslim community was under assault. Mm -hmm. And for a while it suffered, they suffered as pacifists. And at a certain point, they were given permission in the revelation to respond Defend with fight. And the Quran says, while fighting is bad, if it weren't for those willing to take up arms, churches, synagogues, and mosques would be wiped from the face of the earth. So it was defensive, and there are many verses in the Quran that say things like, you know, you, you hear something quite like, <laughs> quite scary, like chase the, the unbelievers, they're called, mm. chase them and slay them where you find them. Mm. So Sam Harris who I don't consider really an intellectually honest person, if I may so, say so. I'd be happy to debate him anytime. Mm -hmm. uh, Me too, on other points, uh, but he's hard to get. On many, on many points. Uh, but then, then you find it says thereafter, but if they stop attacking you, then desist. Right. You know. So I've looked at this. Believe me, if I felt that the Quran uh, had a triumphalistic, aggressive uh, message, uh, I would I would leave Islam. I would have nothing to do with it. Okay. I've looked at it very thoroughly, and I'm convinced that uh, you don't have to look very deeply or very far to find out that the verses that have to do with fighting are very limited in their context, and that uh, Islam is not out to conquer the world and impose itself on the world. Okay, good. Another question I want to ask you before we get too far. You mentioned community and the value and tradition and the value of having a teacher. Many people will have read Irina Tweedy's book, Daughter of Fire, which I unfortunately have not read yet. She was Llewellyn Von Lee's teacher. And as I understand it, uh, her teacher was a real taskmaster. I mean, he, he, he said things about, you know, you have to become like dust under the master's foot and you know he really broke her down and it, it bore fruit obviously there are people i think who try to pose as gurus and behave that way who are not qualified to do so i'm sure that irena tweedy's teacher was qualified to do so um, but that's a little bit of an aside but um is there any sort of particular um teaching strategy in the tradition which um, is perhaps typified by her teacher, or does it really depend on the personality of the teacher and the student, and it can be any, anywhere from you know, um, very gentle and sweet and, and uh, easygoing to really difficult, depending on what the person needs? I think Irina Tweedy's situation is rather unique. Uh -huh. I would say that 
from my own experience, there are occasions when an authentic teacher may confront the false self with with itself. Right. <laughs> but abusiveness is not part of Sufism. Okay. Abusiveness and even authoritarianism is not part of Sufism. We, uh, we would rather rely on the example of the Prophet Muhammad in all matters related to character. Mm. And it's said that Muhammad never even embarrassed a person. Mm. He was that respectful. And there's an extraordinary teaching of, it's called adab, it's spiritual courtesy. This is at the heart of Sufism. Mm. And I've never met, I've never experienced such a refinement of spiritual courtesy anywhere in the world mm. as I have among Sufi teachers. And they can be strong, they can be sometimes anything, <laughs> what can I say, there, in a way there are no rules. Right. But if, they, if it's coming from love, and if it's not imposing on another human being's will, it can be transformational. Mm -hmm. But we have no right to impose ourselves on another person's will, number one. And in general, abusiveness is not transformational, and it's not part of Sufi teaching. Okay. I remember hearing a story one time that Muhammad once cut the sleeve off of his coat because a cat was sleeping on it, and he didn't want to disturb the cat. I love that story because I love cats. Yeah, it's so beautiful. <laughs> it's a beautiful. It's a famous cat story. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you will see like that. You know, there's there's an incredible, uh, an extensive teaching on animal rights mm. that goes back to Muhammad, and there's a whole you know significantly sized book on animal rights in Islam. So this was unprecedented in the world. That's great, yeah. So Islam, like unlike Hinduism and even Christianity, Islam didn't have animal sacrifices and that sort of thing? No, I mean, we have, it may sound that way because, for instance, at certain uh, times of the year and on the pilgrimage and sometimes before a, a retreat, you sacrifice a sheep. But then everybody but, eats it. You eat it and yeah, you right. give it to the poor. But even the procedure for sacrificing a sheep there are certain rules. It's, I mm. suppose it's similar to kosher rules, but I, I know what the Islamic rules are. First of all, you need a very, very sharp knife. You cannot kill the animal in the sight of any other animals, mm. and you say the name of God, and you do it with compassion. Yeah, so which is how those, Native Americans sometimes reverentially treated animals they had to kill for their sustenance. Muhammad even said, for instance, I'll just give you an, a simple example. You've been traveling, you know, across the desert with your camels, and you finally arrive at your destination, and it's it's time for sunset prayer, and you're supposed to take the times of prayer quite seriously. But you're not allowed to pray, even though it's a time of prayer, until you've unburdened your animals. Right. Nice. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to shift gears here rather abruptly and read a series of questions that you put in an article that I read called Sacred Space and Conscious Community. I thought they were all great questions. Uh, I'm just going to read them and then have you riff on the answers. Um, so here's what you said. 
If we have realized the non-dual nature of reality, if we have begun to perceive the interdependent nature of the self, the non-local reality of mind, what do we do now? How is this going to be embodied? What is the moral imperative if all is one? Capital O. Is this a purposeful universe? And what is the purpose? Are states of compassion, aspiration, unconditional love, and ecstatic joy mere epiphenomena of our own electrochemical organisms? Or emergent properties within the field. So I love that. I wrote the whole thing down. I'd like to hear you respond mm -hmm. to it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the totality of my life is an attempt to respond to that. Right. And uh, I'm just like I'm barely figuring these things out and uh, not necessarily having accomplished very much. I have been asking myself questions lately about how can we in community truly, and by community I mean not a commune, not a community where we live together, but a community such as we have here in Louisville, how do we become more of a community? How do we support each other? Uh, how do we create perhaps the uh, you know, economic structures that would benefit us all on a very practical level and allow us to live a more, you know, uh, a life with more integrity and sanity? So, this is, what can we do to increase our capacities for love? And what can we do to reduce whatever is in our hearts that keeps us separate in a false way from each other? This is an unending question. what can we do to solve our problems with love when problems arise rather than anger or with withdrawing mm -hmm. uh, so this i i think i could all i could sum it up by saying a phrase uh, i saw recently on a t-shirt think cosmic act human <laughs> think <laughs> cosmic nice. act human right. uh, this is about becoming a full human being. That's how I see spirituality. Mm -hmm. It's much more than uh, realizing that those highly energized states of consciousness, which we may realize in samadhi or some form of enlightenment, but ha having realized those things, having experienced those things, to one extent or another, how do we, do we now embody that as human beings, how do we integrate this spirituality? So I think Sufism is is good in this respect. It's a very integrated spirituality. And what I'm saying is that we have 14 centuries of integration to draw upon. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of things to figure out in this world at this time in considering all the ways that our humanness is under assault, considering that we now face an inflection point, I think, where, as Catherine Austin Fitz says, uh, we're faced with a choice between a human or a non-human civilization. Mm -hmm. How can we, as spiritual people, uh, uh, preserve our humanness and develop our humanness? Because I see humanness as something that's infinitely developable. Yeah. Uh, it's not what we're born with, but it is a potential because we are the... We are the hologram of the whole, and yet we haven't realized that. 
as we could. So our realization of it will be in our humanness. And sometimes I've said that what I really appreciated about the human beings that have been our mentors is that they were the kind of people you would like to sit down and have a cup of tea with. Mm. You know, that the, 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 the enlightenment that I experienced from these people in Rumi's tradition, for instance, and other Sufi lineages, was not some kind of abstract enlightenment. It was um, a very personal um, per personhood or human character is part of that enlightenment, so not separate from it, and yet human character is an ongoing, that's a work in progress, we're souls in progress. Yeah, this whole thing that you've just been saying is something that's been, I'd say, growing in the awareness of the, the so-called non-dual community, the kind of people who speak at the SAND conference and attend it, um, you know, over the last five, ten years, it, it's shifted from you know, you're not, you're not a person and hanging out in the transcendence and the, the world is an illusion and, and that kind of thing to, hey, wait a minute, you are a person and, and you know, you have to, you're living a life and you have to be more fully embodied uh, and, you know, to and actually live this, this non-dual realization. It's, it's not something to just marinate in, but it's something that has to be sort of integrated and translated into the practicalities of daily life. And uh, just one yes. more point I'll make and let you respond. And I gave a talk at this recent conference where I met you um, on the ethics of enlightenment. And one point I made was, you know, a teacher might be sitting up there claiming to have all sorts of wonderful subjective experiences and radiating a lot of shakti and, you know, spiritual energy and so on. Um, but if you look closely at how he or she is behaving, do you really? Would you really like to be like that person? I mean, is that something that you could emulate and grow, hopefully, and you would like to grow into? And if not, maybe you should leave. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. That's, that's my point I, there. Yeah. I think it's good to apply criteria. I've applied an even more basic criteria. One, mm -hmm. Once somebody was showing me, was attempting to impress me with a video of their latest guru, and the guru's devotees, and I watched, the, I, <laughs> you know, I watched the video, and afterwards they said, you know, well, what do you, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, very interesting, but which of these people would you trust as a babysitter? Hmm. So, yeah, you know, sand the sand community, which I very much appreciate, a wonderful group of people, hmm. and, and they are have been on their own trajectory in over 10 years and as you said moving from that undifferentiated oneness into an appreciation of the heart and what they're calling embodiedness mm -hmm. and uh, you know as you know I wrote a book called The Knowing Heart to try to explore and express the cognitive dimension of the heart because in our understanding, the heart is our greatest, uh, you know, uh, faculty for knowing much more than the brain. I don't mean the physical heart. I mean uh, a quality within the human being that can experience relationship, that can sense the universe qualitatively, that can sense value. That's all from the heart. It's not from intellect. It's not from the senses. 
Um, and I see spirituality, I would like to see spirituality as the awakening, purification, and maturing of the heart, mm -hmm. which is the most essential part of the human being. Um, that's, that's a tall order. <laughs> yeah. Well, one question I have about that is that, um, you know, on the one hand, spiritual development does tend to uh, refine and sensitize and make more subtle, you know, one's heart, one's faculties of, of, all, of all kinds. And on the other hand, the world has a coarsening influence. It's, you know, things are yes. impacting us all the time. And you see people going to extremes of coarseness and just really becoming very hardened. And spiritual aspirants don't want to be like that. They want to be very sensitive and feeling. And you often hear people teaching this way to just feel everything and let it in. But there's this kind of conundrum between being sensitive and being able to deal with the world and how do you culture the capacity to have both simultaneously yes yes the purpose i mean we are refining ourselves and we want to be more refined and sensitive human beings at the same time that refinement uh, is not opposed to uh, developing qualities like courage perseverance stability you know inner strength so maybe our purpose is to develop a whole spectrum of qualities and when it comes to the coarseness of the world we who are spiritual I don't mean that as a claim, but yeah, you know what I mean. We, we, we who aspire, we, we aspirants, who, yeah. You know, aspire to uh, more consciousness, have a transformative role in the coarseness of this world, and that transformation can happen when we are awake to being, when we are being true to that spiritual being which is the heart and consciousness. And then any person who can sustain that state truly and with integrity and sincerity enters into the coarseness of the world and can have a transformative effect. I saw something just this last weekend, and I can't really go into the details of it, but this last weekend, I was with a group of Sufis, and we were with one of the leading neo-Nazis in America hmm. uh, who came to a Sufi circle. He came to a Sufi circle because his son had joined this community after the community had helped the son after they got him out of jail. They got him out of jail. Mm -hmm. And in this community, the sun began to flourish. And there was a, had been a big separation between the father and the son. And just this weekend, the father had come to be with the son. The father and mother had come to be with the son and had to sit for three days in this Sufi community and listen and, and be part of everything we were doing. Wow. And the son had on a, a t-shirt that said, love loves love. Mm. And the father 
was someone who had actually gone to jail for, I believe, for his role in not murdering somebody directly, but being an accessory. And anyway, the mother was weeping through the course of the weekend. Her heart was opening. The father was letting down his defenses and appears that his state had changed. This is an example of when the spiritual energy is there, it feels good. And people who hate are in great pain. And they're not feeling very good. And the things they do that they think might make them feel better, like violence, etc., it doesn't help the soul, it doesn't help the heart. So bring a person like that into an environment where they're surrounded by nothing but love and acceptance, and extraordinary things happen. That's a beautiful story. I heard a story recently about a black man whose mission is to befriend Ku Klux Klan members to the point where they will give him their robes. And he's collected a lot of robes now. He, he goes to places <laughs> where they hang out, sits down, starts talking to them, and just uh, one thing leads to the next, and he gets them to the point where they say, I've had enough of this, here's my robes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah. What, a, what beautiful work. Yeah, I also heard a, you tell a story about how in these Sufi gatherings that go on for long periods of time, I forget what you call them, um, that there was a thing where people would bring invalids and mentally ill people and so on to just sort of sit them there because it was a way of kind of babysitting them. But once they had sat there for a certain period of time, after a while they say, hey, can I go help in the kitchen or can I do this yes. or do that? And it actually healed them just being in that atmosphere. That was an ongoing whirling ceremony or a whirling retreat that would went on in that case for 40 days 24 hours a day, seven days a week of constant whirling. Not the same people. Yeah, taking shifts. Yeah, taking shifts. Right. We read about this in Rumi's time, and we didn't, I never believed it until some friends in, in Turkey said, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And first they tried it for seven days, and that seemed like a monumental feat. I, I'll admit that at first I thought there's going to be a psychotic breakdown, or you shouldn't do this, this is too much. But they went ahead and did it, and, and the results were just as you described. Instead of people getting imbalanced uh, or getting pushed over the edge, people were bringing uh, catatonic people and people with you know emotional imbalances and just leaving them there. And just being in that energy of constant whirling, and I'm not going to say it's merely the physical act of whirling, it's the state of mind and devotion that accompanies it. Mm -hmm. It's an act of love and right. it's the worship of the one. And in that atmosphere, uh, these emotional imbalances were healed in extraordinary ways. That's great. Um, I want to ask you about whirling in a minute, but first uh, a question came in from a gentleman in Tehran, Sahand. And this harkens back to what we were talking about earlier with the history of Sufism and Islam, but maybe can answer his question. He said, do you believe that Sufism wouldn't exist today if Islam had not emerged? Yes, I believe so. And I'll tell you why. Even though I recognize that there is a pre-Islamic tradition in Iran, 
in Khorasan that I'm well acquainted with, that worked in communities and was uh, profoundly mystical. But I would say that the attributes of Sufism that we most appreciate today are develop and come out of the example of the Prophet Muhammad's character and behavior, the groundedness that he demonstrated that became part of this mystical tradition, and also a very coherent metaphysical framework that makes it makes it clear that we have a profound need for the divine and the divine let's not let's not underestimate what we mean by that word but let's say it's the realm of value and unity that is inherent in existence and we above all need to remember that serve that trust that and this is the essential message of the Quran as we understand it and it was also the essential message that Muhammad embodied and always expressed so there have been mystics throughout all time with great respect we honor them but with the Prophet Muhammad I believe something new began in terms of an integration of, of that mystical state so that it became the attainment of people who have a useful livelihood, who are engaged in marriage and family life, and that the highest spiritual attainments are no longer exclusive to people leading lives of, of solitude and uh, ascetic practice, but became possible through the power of love combined with that purification of the mind. Okay. So, whirling. Everyone has heard of the whirling dervishes. I heard you explain it in a rather interesting way. And, and when you explained it, you said that the left foot never leaves the ground. And I thought, how in the world did they do that? You have to have your left foot on a lazy Susan or something so you can spin around. But then I tried it today after lunch. And I thought, okay, you just take your weight off the foot a little bit. And then you can, you can right. kind of move around. But there's a whole beautiful esoteric um, significance to every aspect of it. And it's a, it sounds to me like it's a profound spiritual practice. So I'm sure people would like to hear more about it, how, how it works. Yes, yes. So, first of all, the intention of turning, what is called whirling, we call it turning, mm -hmm. the intention is to become closer to the divine. It is an act of worship and contemplation, meditation at the same time. And as a method, it's powerful and effective because, as we know, we can sit down in meditation and we can delude ourselves. We can, we can appear to be meditating, and yet the mind may wander. When you're turning, you have an almost instant feedback mechanism because if you're not empty inside, if you don't keep that interior space open and free of inner dialogues, 
free of daydreaming, uh, you'll lose the balance in the turning. We have that, uh, it acts as a mirror of our state. When we turn, there are many, many different dimensions that have to be held in a single field of awareness. So, okay, we start with the left leg, which as you discovered, the weight is on the sort of ball of the foot, the front of the foot, the heel does slide around, but it's as if your pivot point is on the ball of your foot. And that is your, that symbolizes our being rooted in the eternal. The right foot is stepping 360 degrees. And each time the person turning is saying, Allah, Allah, Allah. So the right foot is in time. The right foot is in the world of change and transience. The left foot is an axis on which we turn. And it is our, the axis of, of eternity. And then the arms are extended and the right right arm is up with the palm facing upward receiving you can say the divine energies the heavenly grace and that energy is coming through the right arm passing through the heart moving to the left arm which is palm down bestowing that energy into the world I presume so you would say that this is not just symbolic but this is what's actually happening right on some subtle level Yes, yeah. on some subtle level. So it's an act of service. It's not an attempt to get oneself incredibly high and, you know, corkscrew out of the world. <laughs> it is really an act of, 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 of service to bring those finer spiritual energies and bring them into our world and our environment because, so that even the people who are witnessing this ceremony, as well as those participating in it, will feel you might say the micro voltage of that pure vibration and and be affected by it and be uh, have their their souls uh, a little more awakened how long do you so, do it for well in the ceremony itself the ceremony has about 40 minutes of whirling but it's broken up into periods of approximately 10 minutes with a brief pause so but the so pause it's not not particularly so that we don't get tired it is it is um because some people really could go for a very long could go much longer mm. but no the pause actually has a more profound meaning than that the pause that happens between the four movements of turning is in order to bring oneself back to recollection and affirm this is how this is the language we use to affirm one's servanthood to the one rather than to go and just dissolve in the one to keep coming back and affirming that servanthood while still standing arms over the shoulders like the letter Aleph which is the number one first letter of the alphabet and the number one it's just saying one 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 and there are four periods of turning each one, the first three are an ascension uh, toward ecstasy, towards intimacy with the divine, towards unity with the divine. Uh, and let is, me just interrupt to ask, is that the type of subjective experience one actually has? Is, 
while doing it, ecstasy, ascension, unity with the divine? Do most people experience that, that kind of thing? It is experienced. Of course, it's everybody has their own degrees of it. Yeah, degrees and capacities right. for it. I'm not saying that everyone or even the majority of Turners will experience, you know, the absolute oneness in the third period, but that's the that's the structure of the ceremony, and and. Um, it has its experiential truth. Okay. So what's interesting, so there are three, three stages of ascension, mm -hmm. and the third, they're called salams, four salams. In the third one, it's the most ecstatic, the, the music and the rhythm kind of really carries you. It's, it's very blissful and beautiful and, and energized. And that's when the, you might say, the limited self dissolves in the divine. But then the fourth salam comes after that, and it's it's uh, slower, it's more majestic, it's more sober in a way. In the fourth salam, it's as if the the turner is being given his or her self back. It's as if the self is dissolved, and now you're coming back to your selfness. Mm -hmm. It's as if you know you're being told, okay. Try it on one more time. See what you do with it now. A purified self, uh, a new stage of the self. That's the sort of archetypal journey that's embodied in, in the whirling ceremony. And that fourth salam goes on. It's actually quite beautiful and dramatic because, by the way, all of this is accompanied by uh, a very sophisticated classical music composition and we have many compositions but there may be 70 of them that are extant today um, and each of them is like a, a symphony unto itself with chorus and words of, of, of Rumi but you come to the fourth salam and the at one point the music ends except for a single instrument improvising it may be a stringed instrument and it's a very sort of delicate light almost sparkly kind of improvisation meanwhile the dervishes are turning 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 you you hear the swish of their robes and their feet and this very light impro improvised music and it goes on and you're waiting for it to end you know something is about to happen and then suddenly the voice of the Quran reciter breaks into it and begins to recite this very majestic recitation, which is typically the verse of the Quran that says, to God belongs the East and the West, and wheresoever you turn is the face of God. Hmm. So it, upon hearing the Quran recited, all of the dervishes just stop suddenly and back off the floor and kneel down to listen to the full recitation of the Quran, which goes on a bit longer. And it's as if the whole ceremony has prepared them to let those words into their heart. So all of that emptying has prepared them to hear the revelation. So that's the, that's the core of the ceremony. Okay. Um, 
uh, I guess there are Sufi centers around the world where uh, are people um, are non-Sufis welcome to come and sit and observe the thing, or is it sort <laughs> of a you know? You know, we are told uh, we call Rumi our peer. That's the title. Peer means the sort of the the source of the tradition. We say anyone who walks across the threshold of the Sufi lodge has been invited by the peer. Okay. So if you show up, you are welcome. You're welcome. Good. Yes. Okay. Um, I have six pages of notes here. I want to ask you more questions, and it won't necessarily flow in perfect logical order from what we've been talking about, but I, I just want to get them out there, and each one will stimulate some interesting conversation. Um, here's one thing I, I found. Um, from all, This is all now from, um, from your book, Living Presence. You said, It is our essential self capital S, which is our point of contact with infinite spirit. And I'm wondering what the distinction is. Some people would say, well, our essential self is infinite spirit, but you seem to be drawing a difference between them. Yes, yes, yeah, a very important, subtle distinction. Mm -hmm. We would say that when we use this term essential self, we're talking about the absolute foundation of our witnessing consciousness, the self-awareness of ourselves. Uh, now, probably the best formulation of this or expression of this is from the great Ibn Arabi, one of another great, great Sufi, uh, Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi. He said, my journey was entirely within myself. And when I came to the intimate presence of my Lord, my sustainer, I, I saw that I was nothing but servanthood without a trace of lordship, without a trace of sovereignty. I was nothing but servanthood without a trace of sovereignty. So what a subtle, what a nuanced formulation to say that here is the, one of the greatest Sufis of all time coming to that intimate union with the divine, yet experiencing uh, his own I-ness at the same time as he experiences that there is nothing, that all power, all agency is vested in the divine. So this is how we express it. And uh, rather than saying, you're God, I'm God, <laughs> You know, it's it's uh, it's a delicious and beautiful relationship to be that servanthood, knowing that you're nothing, that you are essentially nothing. But it t may take a lifetime of of arriving at that nothingness. Good. <clears throat> okay. Next question. <laughs> Again, from your book, many of our human attributes have atrophied. Through disuse, they have become latent faculties rather than functioning ones. So my question is, um, what are some of these latent faculties or human attributes that have atrophied? Are you talking about like siddhis or sort of uh, kind of supernormal abilities? Um, or are you talking about more, you know, natural human things such as, you know, really profound development of the heart or refinement of the senses or, or things like that? I'm talking mostly about the latter, but we can't really put any limits on it. I, I was trained by a teacher who 
claimed to be in a 26,000 year tradition. Hmm. And I challenged and from the Caucasus. Right. And I challenged him. I said, how do you know? Why do you say 26? How can you say 26,000 years? He says, because we can count. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, that's the procession of the equinox. I was just going to so, say that's yeah, 26,000. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so anyway, this is some people high up in the mountains of the Caucasus. It's a real tradition. It exists. And for five years, I was, I was trained in that tradition mm -hmm. as part of my Sufi training. It was this man who said, for all this period of time, human beings have been losing their latent, they're, they're, they've been losing their human capacities so that the capacities have become more and more latent. In other words, we have them, but they're latent. He's, he he defines Sufism as the awakening and developing, awakening and developing latent human capacities under divine grace and guidance. And he said, if you left off under divine grace, and I said, what do you mean by divine grace and guidance? He said, under the auspices of love. I said, okay. He, and he said, if you left out under divine grace and guidance, if you're only developing latent human capacities, that would merely be occultism. Yes. Okay. Like so you could be a psychic or you could become a black magician who has ca exactly. capabilities but is using them for ill purposes. Yes. 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 Yeah. So the capabilities of human will, of human perception, of human creativity are hypothetically infinite. Mm -hmm. And I like to leave it that way. I would like to see that there's no limit on what can be developed uh, and awakened and made unlatent yeah. <laughs> through spiritual practice. It's an interesting point to bring out, though, because a lot of times spirituality is thought of more in terms of a subjective realization, which may or may not be that evident on the outside. Or you might seem kind of remarkable uh, in certain ways. Um, you might seem to be very loving, a, a Mother Teresa type or something. But, uh, you know, I think that there is a huge range of possibilities for what a human being can be. I mean, if we take some of the ancient traditions literally, such as the things Christ was said to have done, or the things Patanjali talks about in the Yoga Sutras and so on, um, you know, it, it not only indicates that human beings are capable of much more than we now see them able to do, but it also raises really interesting questions about what our relationship is to the laws of nature. If, if Christ yes. really were able to walk on water or turn water into wine or any of these other things, if he really did that, and if it's not just some kind of fanciful story, then you know, how, does he, how does consciousness relate to the law of gravity you know, or to certain chemical right. laws that could enable something like that to happen? Rick, you're bringing up, and this is an extremely important point, and I'm, I'm very happy you, you brought up this question. I would say more important than developing extraordinary possibilities, mm -hmm. which human beings are capable of. I mean, if you just look at the world of sports and many different areas, people are doing unbelievable things. Yeah. But I think it would be more important to ask ourselves, of all the things a human being can develop, of all that is developable in a human being, what attributes are of the greatest value to be developed? Because we can spend a lifetime developing some rather peculiar and perhaps irrelevant things.
there's a story uh, about a sultan who <laughs> uh, offered a, a huge prize for the person in his uh, realm who could uh, develop the most incredible skill. And he's, he gave his people a year, and then he had the contest. And so there was one person who developed the skill of being able to throw a piece of thread all the way across the room and have it go through the eye of the needle. Whoa, that'd be a pretty cool Whoa. party trick. <laughs> pretty cool. And the Sultan said, all right, this man takes the prize, now take him away and cut off his head. <laughs> Because anybody who is stupid enough to spend a year doing that <laughs> to spend a year doing that doesn't deserve to live. Yeah. This is not a Sufi story, but anyway, you get the point. Yeah. And so uh, I think this is memorable. You know, my, one of my teachers said, um, if you have a horse and you wanted to develop a horse to be the best horse possible, you wouldn't treat it like a cow. You wouldn't say a good horse is a fatter horse. Right. You know. So to know what is most developable in a human being and worthy of development, this takes wisdom. Maybe it even takes revelation. Maybe it takes some some profound supernatural source to give us a little guidance from wandering too far astray into different nonsensical things that we might pride ourselves in developing. I have a friend named Dana Sawyer who's been on BatCap a couple of times who has been to India 20 times and speaks fluent Hindi and everything. He's been all over the country and in his travels he's always sort of looked to see if there's anybody who actually is able to do anything extraordinary or if they're all just sort of magicians and he concludes that pretty much all of them are. They have all their little tricks like you can put a walnut under your armpit and squeeze it and make your pulse stop and things like that. But he met one guy who was actually capable of, of swallowing a live snake and then regurgitating it. And he wasn't, it, it wasn't a trick. So you know, just, well, you just an example of something totally, totally <laughs> he worthless. He takes this year's prize. <laughs> yeah, right. Off with his head. <laughs> Off with his head. <laughs> right. uh, um, yeah. Okay. Another abrupt segue here to our next point. Um, you said, the false self is unable to perceive the meaningfulness of events and is unaware of the divine mercy operating in every detail of existence. I uh, like that one jumped out at me because I like the notion that the divine permeates and orchestrates every particle of existence and um, and and has a sort of a merciful agenda, even though it may not seem like it at times. Uh, but yes. in the big in the big picture, in the long run, that's the uh, that's the trajectory of the divine intelligence. So I'd like you to sort yes. of elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, yeah. This is this is very important and. I would contrast this to an attitude we sometimes meet in spirituality uh, or in certain spiritual teachings that the human story uh, can just be dismissed, that ordinary human emotions are garbage or irrelevant or trivial. Yeah, we were talking and, about that earlier in terms of the, the way the non-dual community was 10 years ago. Right, yeah. right. And... Um, that you know to focus purely on the transcendence and to just regard the human story as unimportant now it may be that <laughs> sometimes a teacher will uh, 
will take that approach. I, I was just with one of my dear students, and she said, she said to me, you know, I remember so well that day when you and I were traveling in a bus across Turkey, and I spoke to you for about an hour, and uh, I told you all about my sorrows, and I was feeling very sorry for myself, and, and I told you my whole sad story, and you listened quietly for an hour, and then at the end, you simply said, it's a story, and it's your story. Forget it. <laughs> you, you said that to her? Yeah. Forget, uh -huh. it. forget it. I said yeah. it. Just forget it. Right. <laughs> well, I said that to her at that point, and that was the right... Apparently, she's now telling me that was very important to hear that. Mm. I would also say something very different and equally true, which is that if we are awake enough, every detail of our story is imbued with mercy. Every, there is a purposefulness in our lives that we can discern. And I guess the distinction here is that this woman was telling me her story. We write our stories. And many of the stories we write are our nonsense. They're, they're a falsehood that we've created. I think that's what I was pointing to. But when you get down to the truth of every individual human life, every detail is imbued with the divine mercy. This is a sort of fundamental axiom. Um, that because it takes a little bit of philosophical um, juggling to really get to to, to reconcile that with some of the things we see happening. You know, I mean, these massacres or children born with horrible diseases and so on. It's, it's and the Holocaust and um, you know, I mean, how do you respond to that kind of critique? The way I would respond to that is. First of all, let us look to our own experience and not be imagining what it's like to be a child with some disease. But let's be honest and look at our own experience because we all have enough grief and suffering to look at. Okay. <clears throat> now, in every situation, no matter how painful, no matter how great the loss, and this is a, let's call this a postulate, to be tested, not to be believed. But there's the possibility of a channel back to the infinite mercy, to the infinite grace. Within every experience is the possibility of finding the comfort, the blessing in the pain. And the, the blessing that is found in moments of extreme pain is sometimes the greatest blessing and sometimes what really shapes character. In other words, these are soul-making events, but they're only they're, they're more likely to be soul-making events if we are awake and if we have trust in the divine to find the blessing that's in that pain. Um, so this, too, is really very much at the heart of uh, the Quranic revelation, which says that the nature of reality is fundamentally compassionate and merciful. The compassionate, the Rahman in Arabic, is that the, the existence is, is 
being created, it's overflowing as an act of divine compassion. The, the infinite divine is breathing all the worlds into existence as an act of, of bestowal and beneficence. Within this existence, every witnessing agent can experience the mercy or the rahim, which is the channel back to the one. Uh, so that's always there in potential, and sometimes the potential is only fully realized when we are in extraordinary pain or loss. Mm. So this is the balance of existence. This is not to deny that there, the, the extraordinary pain and suffering, but there's also another postulate, which is that we will never be given more than we can bear. Mm. And uh, But every human being and every witnessing being that has free will can go either way, can either uh, become embittered by the suffering of life or can become spiritualized by the suffering of life. In that way, it's not as if the divine is necessarily creating all this suffering uh, in order to... Uh, cook us, you know, but in fact, mo most of the suffering is created by human beings through their own free will and their collective evils that require of us uh, resistance and courage and, um, and mercy and service. But the suffering of life that is inevitable, such as disease and death and loss, that cannot be avoided, even if everybody were being kind, uh, that that suffering that's inherent in the nature of existence uh, is still always a channel, a, a an, an element that contributes to the perfection of the soul. Good. I'm sure some people might argue with that, but I think you're right. Um, I've interviewed a few people who, for whom suffering was their primary path. There's a woman named Shruti, people can look this up on Batgap, who you know, had some medical condition which caused so much pain that she would literally black out on the bathroom floor from the pain. And she, yeah. she attributes what she went through to have had a you know, very instrumental in her awakening. And that's just now, one example. I just want to respond to what you just said about there, there may be some people who would argue with me about that or argue well, about that. Well, you can that. get into philosophical debates about yeah. Right, yeah. So, I don't know, I, I, I would just say it's not something to argue about, but I would just refer people to their own experience yeah. and find out for themselves honestly, when you are in that pain, how are you going to deal with it? When you're in that pain, how, can, how and to what extent can you transform that pain or transcend that pain, not through denying it? I mean, there are certain principles. You will get nowhere through denial, uh, but through acceptance, through consciousness. Um, the next point I'm going to raise is somewhat related to something you were just saying about freedom of choice and where we put our attention and steering the, the course of our life this way and that. Yeah, you say, um, there are, however, ideas of a higher order that originate through contact with a deeper reality. And if these ideas are learned and thoroughly assimilated by our intellects, then their significance may be transferred to the subconscious mind. Uh, 
and it kind of reminds me like if you eat junk food all the time then junk is going to sort of be what builds up your body tissues you know and it's going to result right. in in various health problems and so what you're saying here i think is that um you know contacting a deeper reality and um you know having your attention there uh gets assimilated by our intellects and is then transferred to the subconscious mind much the way what we eat is transferred to our tissues and it becomes sort of like kind of our our, our deeper makeup you know and and yes. just kind of governs the day-to-day -day course of our life even if we're not consciously remembering all these things that we've imbibed yes yes well a simple example of this would be learning gratitude mm -hmm. i remember many years ago the first time I heard about gratitude mm -hmm. as a spiritual possibility. And I was maybe 22 years old, perhaps, something like that. And I had had a religious education. Um, I was raised as a Catholic. I don't ever, honestly, no one told me about gratitude, um, which I believe now is the foundation of all virtues. But when I first heard, in fact, it was my own sheikh, uh, Suleiman Dede, Mevlevi sheikh, who first expressed the value of gratitude. Well, starting with that very simple idea, it was so new, it's shocking to think of it now, that that could have been a new idea. Mm. But since that time, gratitude has been a practice more and more. I'm still working at it. Mm. I'm not grateful all the time, but it's become more of my natural response to the world and to events. It's almost second nature to be in that state of gratitude for everything, mm. for everything that comes, everything that happens. And that took time and a certain training of the mind to where you don't immediately resist, resent, complain and is that because of what we were talking about previously divine mercy i mean if because if you really if you really in your bones uh, have a knowing that everything is divine mercy then you're going to be grateful for whatever happens that's the metaphysical foundation of it yes mm -hmm. but it also has to be experiential you have to have enough experiences of the truth of that right. to be convinced to be convinced of it yeah i haven't asked you much about your personal experience and some people are reticent to talk about that buddhists are reticent to talk about it um but i mean you know you've been doing this for decades now and what has that what has it done to your day-to-day hour-to-hour 24 7 um state of consciousness I recognize in myself um, a, a personality self or an egoic self that has its reactions, uh, its preferences, its annoyances, its pleasures, all, all of that stuff. And then I recognize in myself another aspect of my being that is deeper that is prior to all of that stuff mm -hmm. and more and more 
I live with these two in relationship. And the one, the primary one, which is the deeper, I choose to call it the essential self, which has is closer to the divine qualities of patience and gratitude and forgiveness, etc., is exercising an influence on the personality level to uh, both restrain it when necessary and to cultivate the personality as an instrument of expression. Almost like, an, I guess, the way an actor would cultivate a role, but it's not just a role, it's the social self, the personality self, is there to engage in relationship with other people. And you have your own intrinsic qualities that are personal to you. I'm, you know, I'm basically an intro, I'm somewhat of an introvert, even though as much as I do teaching in public, I'm basically an introvert. And I don't particularly like attention, but I find myself in that role. So I have my own attributes. That essential self is living more and more in a state of trust, less fear, less resentment. This seems to be where the process leads. I also think that if I were to put this into a sort of more theoretical framework, I would say that I believe, or I say I know, that everything that I am, all of my best qualities, I wouldn't even call them mine, insofar as they through me, are sourced in something else. They are sourced in the divine source, you know, to use a simple, fairly neutral term. They're, they're sourced in the source. I have, no, I have no gratitude, I have no patience, I have no power of forgiveness, I have no strength. All of these things are sourced in that source, and to the extent I can activate those things, they gain expression through me. Yeah. So I see, I see my life as really the uh, awakening and expression of those divine qualities in everyday life. And the most immediate practice for me, the constant practice, is removing the obstacles to love, to everything that gets in the way of the simple, non-judgmental state of being in relationship to everyone in this world and everything in this world. Yeah. I mean, an analogy I would use to just describe what you just said is that you know, all the things that we use in our daily lives that run off electricity um, don't work without the electricity. I mean, light yeah. bulbs don't create light without electricity. Refrigerators don't create coldness and so on. And so, you know, the qualities that these things are designed to display, uh, they can only do if they are plugged in properly to the electrical source. And so same with, same with human beings, except that you know, the analogy is not so, I mean, the analogy is simplistic because that source we're referring to here is a infinite repository of all sorts of beautiful qualities. And I imagine you can, you can elaborate on this. It's not just sort of pure, plain, vanilla oneness. All the laws of nature, all the qualities of nature, everything in the whole universe resides there in seed form and gets expressed or manifested or channeled through 
the various instruments of the divine that we regard as the world. Exactly. Yeah. So we can think of the divine or spirituality or consciousness as plugging ourselves into the outlet of divine energy. Yeah. 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 And there are all sorts of beautiful qualities that can radiate through us once we've done that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of truth in that. There is a fundamental energy that is fundamentally electromagnetic and it runs on a spectrum from sexual to spiritual. Mm -hmm. It's all fundamentally one energy. And people get sometimes confused about, you know, what to do with that energy and how to, how to use it, how to transform it, what to use it for. Yeah. And this sounds a lot like, you know, the Hindu or Tantric ideas of the Kundalini energy and, and the various chakras that it can rise through and, and so on. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. So my previous earlier question was about attention and where we put our attention and how the qualities that we imbibe through where we put our attention get ultimately you know, digested and into and, and stored in the, the, the subconscious mind. And there are a number of other points you made about attention that I, I thought would be worth elaborating on here. Um, you, could, you said it could almost be said that a human being is whatever his or her attention is focused on. And I guess another way of phrasing it is that to which we give our attention grows stronger in our life. Yes. So imagine, I mean, <clears throat> that's a pretty absolute statement that I made, but I think I would justify it by saying if we could truly give our attention to the divine, mm -hmm. we would reflect the divine. Rumi says, <clears throat> if your thought is a rose, you are the rose garden. Mm. So whatever we hold in our attention, we become that. And Sufi practice involves uh, work with the divine attributes through the divine names uh, that are in Arabic and, and also present in all the languages of Sufism, Turkish, Persian, etc., etc. But Sufis will, or a sheikh will give to a, a student a certain divine name to focus on. Maybe if they need to, maybe it's a quality that needs strengthening in, in them, like awareness. Maybe it's something they have naturally and which you want to develop it even more. Or in some cases, it might be an attribute like um, uh, a person may be very shy. You want to give them some strength. So you give them an attribute related to the divine strength. So uh, it's as if we live, we live in a world of qualities, not just the world of things. Senses and the mind know the world of things. The heart knows the world of qualities. So if we focus our heart on these different qualities, then we make those qualities more real in ourselves. They become part of, our, of who we are and of our character, of our very being. So the qualitative development of the human being, which is going on in many ways unconsciously, it can go on through in art, you know, when you read a great novel, for instance, uh, or music, and you're inspired by, uh, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and Schiller's Words of Freedom, you know, the soul is developing qualitatively. So this would be an interesting approach to spiritual education, to, to, to think of it in terms of you know, the qualitative development of the human being through the heart. Mm. That's a very interesting approach. And, uh, 
and the point that comes across is that it it's it's cumulative and it's it's not necessarily yes. instantaneous so there's going to be a, a an accumulation over time of the qualities which to which we give our attention yes yeah. yes Good. Um, and we can and we can live our lives this way. I mean, what else is there to do? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Continuing on this theme, you say um, we not only need attention, we also need balance. Balance between the narrow and the wide, the outer and the inner, the material and the spiritual. And and this brings up an interesting point. Maybe you can riff on this a little bit, which is that um, you know, on the one hand, we need routine and habit and training and so on to accomplish things. Um, you know, you can't reinvent the wheel every time we want to do something there. And so, so routine work is kind of, you know, involved in almost every occupation and everything else we do. Um, but routine work can be very, routine can be very narrowing to the awareness. Uh, and so it has to be kind of counterbalanced with unboundedness. And yeah. then in the, with that, with that deeper foundation of unboundedness, routines are no longer binding. Um, so there's this sort of you know boundless and boundaries seesaw balance that that is achieved. Yes, yes. Our practice, for instance, has its routines mm -hmm. and its unboundedness. The routines in in traditional Sufi practice, for instance, is a ritual prayer five times a day. And yeah. the ritual prayer, it's the same thing again and again and again. Yeah. It's certain series of postures. Mm -hmm. The but the wisdom in the ritual prayer is that there's also an element in the ritual prayer where you you have the option to recite a verses of the Quran that you've memorized that are your own choice. So theoretically, you can add you know those particulars that those unique choices into the ongoing repetitive ritual. And also the beauty of the ritual and its repetitiveness is that it becomes a reference point. And as you travel through stages of awareness or depths of awareness, your experience of that repetitive ritual changes. But meanwhile, that is something in Sufism that you only you do it five times a day, and maybe it takes you five or ten minutes for each of those times of prayer. It doesn't take a lot of time. Meanwhile, between those times of, of the ritual prayer, you're living your life. But because you have those inflection points in your day where you're called to remembrance of the divine, then the periods in between have more remembrance with them. Yeah. And you're living your life. Sufis don't spend huge amounts of time in meditation. They don't see meditation as the purpose of life, or they don't even see it as the primary means of reaching realization. I mean, it has its place, don't get me wrong, in a certain measure. I mean, there is meditation in daily Sufi practice, and maybe it's a half hour, maybe it's an hour, plus the ritual prayer and chanting and other things. But rarely do Sufis, except for a limited periods of retreat, which might be 40 days long, and that's pretty long. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but generally, the, the, it's considered to be a perfectly uh, comprehensive spiritual practice to pray five times a day, to be in a state of remembrance in between 
to do some zikr or chanting, but then to live your life in remembrance and to have that freedom for your relationships, for your creativity, for for whatever your free will chooses. So, but it's all in a sense contained in that matrix of regular ritual worship. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't take a shower all day long either, you know, but you take one at least once and it keeps you clean. That's right. You're cleaner all day by virtue of having taken it. And maybe if you're doing exactly. a lot of physical work, you take a couple of them, you know, <laughs> and each one kind of reestablishes cleanliness and, and uh, you know. Actually, a better analogy might be dyeing a cloth the way they used to do it in India. You dip it in the dye, bleach it in the sun, dip it in the dye, bleach it in the sun. Each time it bleaches, it loses its color, but it gets more and more and more color fast through that alternating practice and eventually can't lose its color in the brightest sunlight. Yes, yes. Okay, continuing on the theme of uh, attention. I picked out all these quotes from your book that I liked. this was a good one. Competition, competition between the higher and lower energies of our psyche. I think a lot of people can relate to this. When we feel centered, the higher energies of our psyche are able to organize the lower energies and lend them a coherence that they normally lack. At the same time, however, the lower energies uh, are able to disorganize the higher ones and introduce into them something of the incoherence of the lower levels. So, you know, this is kind of tug-of-war thing that can happen. Um, well, you had not elaborate before I say anything else. Well, <clears throat> to have our spiritual practices are a way of centering ourselves. And in Sufism, we think quite explicitly, for instance, in the ritual prayer, there's a moment when your forehead touches the ground. That's a moment of complete, total, bodily, and emotional, and intellectual, spiritual submission. Submission to the oneness. It's a very single-pointed practice. So imagine practicing that again and again and again. It's like Mm -hmm. focusing right into the deepest center. And all spiritual practices can be like that. And we often talk of the dimensionless point within our own being. And dimensionless means it's nowhere, but we say it's within ourselves. If we could place our attention on that dimensionless point within our own being, we have connected to something that is profoundly magnetic, and it induces coherence in our emotions, in our thoughts. So this is the idea of... It's actually interesting for people to hear what's going on when they see Muslims standing, bowing, and prostrating. What are they prostrating to? First of all, they're not prostrating to a hierarchy. They're not prostrating to a theology or a concept. They're not prostrating to an institution or church. They are prostrating to the infinite. And the most common synonym for Allah is al-haq, which means the real. So the real and Allah are synonymous. They are prostrating to the real. Now, they're praying at ideally at roughly five times a day. So imagine there are five um, waves of prayer, of ritual prayer, circling the planet at all times. Mm. Got that? Yeah. Can you imagine? So there are people bowing and prostrating to the real. Five waves circling the planet at all times. Also, they are oriented towards Mecca. Mm. 
In other words, they're all, their intention is to orient themselves to an empty cube, an empty cube in Mecca. There's nothing in that cube, and everybody knows there's nothing in that cube. That too is the dimensionless point. Now, if you were to place yourself in that empty cube, these five waves of humanity in worship circling the globe, all of those souls would be, in a sense, all meeting themselves there in that empty cube. So, this is an energetic phenomenon, and by virtue of connecting into that emptiness, that purity, which is the divine alone, and Islam is, one of the beauties of Islam is that it's very fastidious about not allowing any idols, you know, no, no human idols, no theological idols, it's a kind of trust the divine and the divine alone. And that's what people are bowing to. That's what people are bowing to in themselves. That's what they are remembering. And the Quran, Islam teaches, the greatest practice is remembrance of God. For truly, in the remembrance of God, hearts find tranquility. That's the essence of the whole thing. Nice. And of course, that idols thing was taken to extreme and this distorted and you know the cartoonists and that whole we won't even get into it I and mean, we've talked in the beginning about <clears throat> you know, that sort of fundamentalist attitude all right so i have a lot of uh notes here still but we won't have time to do them all but here's one that is a little different than the other things i've talked about which i thought was interesting one of the sayings transmitted by the prophet muhammad god says Take refuge in my mercy from my wrath. Take refuge in me from me. And mm, yeah. I, I thought that was cool because <laughs> I think that in a way, God is all there is, really. I mean, if God is omnipresent, then how can there be anything other than God? And if there is something other than God, then he's not omnipresent. There's a hole in him, you know. <laughs> and, right. and so the, the whole notion of taking refuge in me from me just intrigued me. Well, it could be confusing, intriguing and confusing, or it could be evidence of this non-dual reality that I've been trying to point to. But let's take this apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, in this cosmic existence that we find ourselves in, we can recognize that there are qualities of wrath or stringency and power on the one hand. And on the other hand, there are the qualities of beauty, mercy, compassion, tenderness. So we have two great categories. Let's call one the attributes of beauty and the other the traditionally called the attributes of power. But with that power is also the destructive power, the, the wrath, not as a personal emotion, but as that which is just blows things away. So it would be false and, and overly sentimental to ignore that wrath and stringency is an aspect of reality. It is part of the makeup of reality. There are hurricanes, there are earthquakes, just as there are tropical breezes and uh, beautiful forest ponds. So this is the situation we're in. But the teaching is, and this is said in another Islamic saying, 
my mercy prevails over my wrath. In other words, my mercy is the bottom line. Everything finally adds up to mercy. Even the wrath is just mercy with a little veneer of wrath. Mm. Kind of so, like a strict parent who really loves you and, and is... Yeah. It's all love and even the strictness is an aspect of the love and will bring you back. Sometimes it brings you back to the straight path. Mm. Sometimes it brings you back to reality. So that's how it's viewed. Now, it's kind of a charming and scary way to say it, you know, what you just read. Take, uh, take refuge in, in me, my from mercy. me. In me, from me. Right. So that's just a very sobering, very direct way of telling us that the refuge is always possible. Mm -hmm. And that's called Rahim. That's the mercy quality that I was talking about before. It's the, that there's always a channel back to the mercy in every moment, in every circumstance. Here's a quote that I think relates to this. I think this is from the Quran. It's, um, the unsuspecting child first wipes the tablet then write, and then writes the letters on it. God turns the heart into blood and desperate tears, then writes the spiritual mysteries on it. That's from Rumi. It's the same oh, idea. Rumi, okay. that's, yeah. that's, a, that's some poetry of Rumi. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that says it very well, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's even yeah, more poetic. It relates to yeah. the whole suffering thing we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and this here's some nice, here's a nice wrap up point for something that we um, discussed earlier. Also, that you wrote this in in your book. Presence allows us to open to the suffering of the world. Compassion is being able to feel the world's suffering without being drowned by it. I love mm. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, all I can say to that, uh, Rick, is that presence is a human attribute to be developed. It is our perhaps most fundamental and important spiritual attribute because everything we will ever attain, everything we will ever truly know and experience will be experienced and known more fully in presence. Mm -hmm. Presence is that comprehensive self-awareness. I want to define it. It's not just some you know vague term. Presence is a state above our thinking, our feeling, our sense impressions, our behavior. It's a comprehensive state of self-awareness that comprehensively uh, gathers all of those other kinds of experience, thought, feeling, sensing, into a single field of awareness and also included in that is our direct spiritual experience. So this is the, uh, you know, what's absolutely necessary in order for us to be able to receive the divine wisdom and grace that is always showering upon us in, by the very nature of reality itself, that reality itself is showering the conscious witness with qualities, with insights, with meaning, with beauty, and there's no greater work than to awaken the presence to be aware of that. Mm. Incidentally, I was impressed by the fact that you wrote this book 25 years ago. I mean, if I, if I had written anything 25 years ago, it would be a far cry from anything I would be capable of writing today, so uh, pretty good. Well, thank you. Here's another point or two on presence from your book. As we learn to make our home in consciousness or presence, 
we feel more freedom within our circumstances, even without changing them. Mm. So I like that one. Okay, so again, the, the word presence, but in a different context here. I find this one interesting. Within ourselves, we are surrounded by presences. The saints and masters are here within us, as is the presence of spirit. And you alluded to this elsewhere, too, um, earlier in the interview. Um, do you feel that the saints and masters who have died are still, uh, still exist in some form and are kind of um, overseeing or, or helping humanity? Yes, that's sometimes very tangible, uh, something we're aware of. And I uh, personally, I feel that I, we owe so much, for instance, to the presence of Rumi. I think there's no other explanation for the uh, kinds of transformation that I've witnessed in others, but that there is some kind of uh, flow of an, an influence, a, uh, a blessing that comes from certain sources and that these qualities or this these presences are eternal, they are, they are not bound by time and space. So they are morphogenetic fields, a qualitative morphogenetic fields, to use Sheldrake's term, mm -hmm. which makes sense if you're aware of what it means. And so this is um, such an important part of spirituality, and it's it's one of the reasons why our respect for the traditions should humble us and make us more receptive, and not, you know, as as independent and practical as we Americans are, we shouldn't go too far with that. To neglect that we need help. And there is spiritual help. Nice. Okay, here's a final quote from your book. This divine essence is nearer to us than our jugular vein. The divine face is everywhere to be seen. Its qualities surround us. So, yes, yes. Nice. And that's straight from the Quran. Is basically. it? Okay, great. That's, that's an example of the mysticism of the Quran and how close it is to the surface. I mean, it's right there. It's right explicit. The Quran is a deeply mystical text and, and uh, um, wheresoever you look is the face of God. And, and that kind of quote should give, give everyone hope and inspiration. Um, I mean, yes. you know, the divine is not somewhere far off in a place that we couldn't reach. Um, it's nearer to us than our jugular vein. It permeates every cell in our body. And it's just a matter Absolutely. of tuning into something that's already completely within us. It's infinitely near. And the word for saint in our tradition is wali. And wali means the one who is near to, in this case, near to God. Mm -hmm. A friend is a wali. So the, a saint, we don't have a word like saint that comes from sanctus in Latin. The meaning of the equivalent of a saint in the Islamic Sufi tradition is the one who is the friend of God because of being near, near to the divine. Mm, nice. That's a nice, a nice way to conceive of it. And we can all be that because we are, we're all near to the divine. We just have to become aware of our nearness. Every human being, and everything I'm saying is not. There's no nobody holds the franchise on this. Uh, it doesn't belong to any one religion. Truth is truth. You know what Muhammad says? It's so beautiful. Uh, 
he says, truth is the believer's lost camel. Meaning, <laughs> when you recognize it, you recognize it as your own. Like, nobody would mistake the lost camel. I know that camel, that camel is mine. So, truth, wherever you find it, is your lost camel. Nice. Well, on that note, let's end. I've really appreciated spending this time with you, and I think people really appreciate Likewise. it. The book that I've been quoting from mostly here is, uh, what was it, Living Presence, and I'll link to it from your page on batgap.com. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's full of good stuff. I'll also link to your website and um, anything else you want me to link to. So uh, there's, one, there's one other book I'll mention. Uh -huh. I mean, there are a lot of. Books. I'll there link to that one too. But what's the, what's the other one? The Knowing Heart. The Knowing the, Heart. The living Presence and the Knowing Heart are almost like a pair. Okay. Living Presence is more more universal, mm -hmm. but the Knowing Heart is more explicitly about the Sufi tradition. It's pretty universal too, but it's about the heart. But it's also about uh, the Knowing Heart and and about the issues of bringing an ancient tradition into the contemporary world. Great. All right. Well, I hope this has been a, you know, I hope a lot of people will be introduced to you through this interview. And uh, I think most of the listeners to this show would, will really enjoy reading your books or tuning in to what you're doing in whatever way they can do. Um, Thank you. I appreciate the time you've taken, Rick. I think this is the longest interview I've ever given, and I, I appreciate your allowing the depth that, God willing, that there may be some depth in this, or at least amount of time to do justice to some of these ideas. Well, that's what I try to do. You know, I've, I've got nothing better to do, really, except my wife says I have to chase down the UPS truck because <laughs> something very important that we needed, he, <laughs> he didn't leave. Um, so I'm going to do that in a minute. But um, in any case, I love to do that with these interviews is prepare for them as much as I can during the week and then really spend a couple hours going as deep and as comprehensively as possible with the person so that, you know, so that people can really and get more than just dip their toe in. Well, thank you. I feel like it was a really good dialogue good. Be between us. Great. So thank you so much. Well, thanks. So let me just make a couple of quick concluding remarks, and then I'm going to go chase the UPS truck. This is an ongoing series, as most of you watching will be aware. Go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and just check out the different menus, and you'll you know see everything that we have to offer and all the past interviews and the upcoming ones that are scheduled and so on. So thanks for listening or watching, and thank you again, Kabir, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you.